Welcome to Expedia Talks, a special WIT podcast series where we put the spotlight on Expedia group leaders to talk about all things travel tech, industry trends and changing customer behaviour. My name is Yo Siu Hoon, founder of WIT. In this episode, the last in this series, I have the pleasure of speaking to Michael Dykes, who's Vice President, Market Management, Asia Pacific. Now, Michael moved from Tokyo to Singapore earlier this year. So let's just find out first how he's settling into his new home and what he misses most about Japan. Michael, it's coming into December. Do you miss the cold weather? No. <laughs> Not at all, actually. It's it's hilarious you mention this. Uh, so first of all, thank you for for the invitation to the podcast. Sehun, it's great to be speaking with you. Um, I actually really like the warm weather to the point that uh, many Singaporeans think I'm a little bit strange because I don't tend to turn my air conditioning on because I like it actually a little bit warm. So everyone finds that very strange. Uh, you know, in, in Japan, of course, it's probably, it's quite cold now. Uh, and I have lots of people asking me, like, you know, like, are, do you do you miss it? And I'm, I was thinking, no. not at all. Right, right. I really like the warmth. It's really nice. Um, I do miss the food. Yeah, I'm sure you do, you know, but there's lots of good Japanese food there in is. Singapore. Yeah. But the thing is, you actually, you were born in the kind of tropics, right? You were born in Okinawa. Yeah. I understand. And then you moved from Okinawa to Indiana. <laughs> Yes. And I am so curious. <laughs> what was that transformation like? But tell me a little bit about your childhood in Okinawa, which sure. is a wonderful island. Look, yeah, and Okinawa is an amazing place. If if people haven't been there, it's, you know, south of Japan. It's a, it's the most uh, famous resort island, really, in Japan. It's kind of like the Hawaii of Japan in many ways. In fact, uh, in 2019, there were more visitors to Okinawa than to Hawaii, this is an interesting fact. So really amazing beaches, really amazing culture. It's also located between Japan, Taiwan, Korea, China. It's kind of historically been a mixture of a lot of different cultures. So even within Japan, it's a very interesting place with a mix of cultures and histories. It's very distinct uh, to that island. And I think that growing up there, there's also 25% of the land mass on Okinawa is actually occupied by U.S. Army bases or U.S. military bases. And as a result, there's also a lot of people who are associated with the military or somehow do associated with the United States. And that's kind of where I came in. You know, my father was not a military person, but he was working with the U.S. Department of Defense. And so one of his last projects happened to be in Okinawa. So I was lucky enough to be born there in Okinawa um, to a Japanese mother. You know, she came from the mainland. Uh, but Okinawa was... Like I said, it's a blend of cultures, and that meant that it's also a blend of races, actually. And so there's a lot of people like me who are half Japanese, half U.S., or half Japanese and half something else. Um, and I think as a child, I thought that was normal. So it was very jarring to then go to Indiana, very rural And that part. was when you were... Seven. Seven years old. Seven. So you moved to Indiana. So tell, tell us what was, what was that like, that transformation, that, that shock to the system? Well, you know, it's like I said, it's, you're going from one place which was definitely multicultural, very mixed, uh, to another place which is essentially at the time, and things may have changed, right? But to, at that time, it was a monoculture, right? It was, it was a very rural part of the United States. You didn't have a lot of minorities around. Uh, it was, it was mostly white people around you. Um, 
It was also the, the 80s, and so for people who are way younger than me, uh, you know, you might find, find it hard to believe, but in the 80s, Japan in the United States was often viewed like China today. It was viewed as a huge economic threat. And so for people in that part of the United States where there were a lot of car factories, really, uh, you know, Japan was not necessarily viewed in a positive way. And I think growing up in that space, it was interesting because I think there was, a, I, I remember even as a child feeling a lot of very anti-Japanese sentiment and what that meant for me as an individual. Um, so it was, it was hard, it, to right. be honest. It was, it was quite, quite difficult. But I look back on it now and have a lot of positive thinking about it. Um, I'm glad I've, I went through the experience. You know, it was a farm. But that's the wonderful thing about human memory. You know, we, we, when we look back, we tend to remember the good stuff, right? You know, and that, that is what human nature is about. But you did say that you, for some reason, there was an instinct in you that said you want to hang on to your Japanese language. And so you actually got your father to buy you a textbook. So you held on to that language, right? So, so tell us then, you know, like, what lesson did you think that you learned from that difficult time, you know, f to adapt to what you're doing now in your career? Yeah. Well, I, I think a few things. Um, I mean, the, the language piece, I think it, there was a big piece in my mind that I had to escape and escape for many of us. Like many people go through this in different cultures and different, as, as you grow up in, in difficult circumstances, is some people latch on to education and learning as your ticket out. And I think in many ways I thought of it that way. Like, you know, you can use your education and just try and learn as much as you can, and hopefully then that will launch you into a different space. I think as a child I always wanted to come back to Asia. Uh, as a result of the experiences I had, that led me to the language. But as I said, it also had positive pieces, right? It's a farm. We grew wheat, corn, pigs. The nearest supermarket is... 45 minutes away by car. Uh, the nearest town was 20 minutes by car. So it was very rural. And what that meant for us, when I look back now, is two things I, I really learned as positive things. One was self-sufficiency, because it is not Singapore. I can't call someone and have someone fix something tonight or tomorrow, right? People often would not come out to the farm because it was too far. So you had to learn how to fix things on your own. And I think my father was very good about pulling us into this. And so you just learned how to do things because you can't depend on other people to get the job done. I think the second thing uh, was a respect for food because it's a farm. And, you know, when we were growing up in that part of the world, they had a program called 4-H, um, which is what a lot of kind of farm kids take part in. And it teaches you the basics of agriculture. Um, I had to raise a piglet from birth. But the last stage is you have to sell them for food. Oh, then you have to sell Percy. I know, but you see your reaction, right? But I think it gives you a real respect for where our food comes from, whether it is animal or plant. There's a lot of work that goes into that to building. And so it really makes me very conscious of food loss and food waste uh, because I know how hard it is to do it. And there's, you know, for the, for the animals, they've given up their lives to provide us with their food, right? So super important for me. So those, there's positives out of this. Yes, no, but it's interesting, right? I mean, you talk about their farm life and how you describe it. And for people now, it's actually an idyllic life. I mean, they, I, I have a friend who lives in New York and she's from Singapore and she and her husband are thinking of buying a farm, you know? I mean, now it's that dream life, you yeah. know, let's go back to the farm. Yes. And then we want to know where our food comes from now. And we want to be like really, really as close to nature. So in a way, your childhood is what is 
trendy now. You know, it's, it's true. Yeah, you know, so you know things move in a in a circle, right? So so tell us about then you you were. You knew you wanted to come back to Asia, so you went back to Japan. Tell us mm. about that return to Japan, and then when when did you join Expedia? Then okay, uh, so my I had my first job in New York City. I was working in IT, and I was four years into the role. And I think someone said, "Hey, do you want to move to Japan and start an office there for us?" We were just starting a new technology uh, to consulting group in New York City for Sun Microsystems. And they didn't have the office in Tokyo yet. And I was, what, probably 26, something. I was quite young. And they just, they thought, oh, this is a person who speaks Japanese. Let's send Why him. Why not? <laughs> I know. And I was overjoyed to go. I was very ready. I was like, of course I'm going to go. So I went as an expat, uh, which, for again, people who are based in Singapore would know. There's a lot of people who come on expat packages. It's a nice life. Nice. Right? Very. They pay, you know, companies yeah. will pay for your living expenses. They'll pay for your apartment. So it's a fantastic life, and I did that for two years, and I loved uh, living and working in Japan. And you know, I told my mother, uh, "I really like it here. I think I want to stay." And you know what she said? She said, "Well, you're not living like Japanese people live. You're living a very different lifestyle. If you really want to stay there, you need to live like a Japanese person and see if you really can can handle it in that culture, right, or in that in that society." And so. When I, I left my job and I joined another company, I joined as a local employee, which meant a 30% drop in salary. It meant I could no longer live in this nice apartment. I had to live in a very small uh, apartment in a not very fashionable part of town. You're such a good boy. You listen to your mother. Your mother is a very wise woman. My mother is very wise. I can tell you at these important points in life, she just would give you this really good nugget of information. And that was amazing because... I realized that she was so right. You're living in a bubble, right? And uh, I think I've, I've always looked back on that and realized that was definitely the right choice. Maybe it set me back in my income, but it allowed me to experience Japan probably in the right way, right? And that, I think, confirmed that I still, I loved working in Japan and I really wanted to stay in that culture. So I stayed on uh, in IT and then, uh, what would it be, you know, eight years, nine years ago, um, Expedia gave me a call to say, hey, do you want to come over and, you know, run our <laughs> business in Japan? And again, I never thought about it. Expatriate package or local no, package? No, 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 definitely not. <laughs> a very local package, uh, to, be, to be super honest, but very local. And we just, you know, uh, I, I, I jumped at the chance uh, because I think I realized through all of this that one of the things I just loved when in any of the jobs I was doing was I felt like I was giving back to society. Like you realize like that's something important to you, not just hitting a revenue number, and travel, I think I realized like it is such an amazing industry to be in. Like we talk about it as it's leisure travel, but we are bringing people together. We bring families together. We we create new friendships in, in travel. We help people and cultures who don't understand each other to you know to kind of fill their differences. And I just found that magical that I could be part of that kind of ecosystem. And while I was doing it, I was I'm a big fan of Japan, so I was bringing lots of foreigners to Japan. And I just, I felt like it was such a fulfilling job. And so that's where I ended well, up staying. And, and that's here, how here you, found, that's found you, you found your position in life. And somebody described travel to me, if you wanted to use a business jargon, was like the transaction of emotional experiences. Oh, I love which that. I thought, you know, which I thought was really correct. Yes. You know? And so now you've I'm going to steal that. <laughs> 
anytime. I stole it from somebody else too. You know, we are all thieves. <laughs> so then you move to you move to Singapore. So okay, are you living in a bubble in Singapore? Are you living like a local? Uh, uh, well, maybe a Singaporean needs to tell me. I I tried very hard not to live in a bubble. Um, so I am not living in orchard or. <laughs> Any of those places, I'm living in Red Hill, which I love. Um, it's I a have, very local place, actually. Many yeah. people mm-hmm. told me, "Why are you mm-hmm. living in Red mm-hmm. Hill?" I love Red Hill. Um, it's it, there's a great hawker center right nearby. It's very you know quiet. It's very family oriented. It's just it's a really nice part of town. So I hope I'm living not living in a bubble. Uh, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll let the Singaporeans make that judgment call. <laughs> okay, so we followed your trajectory from Okinawa to Indiana and then back to Japan, and you know your thoughts on local versus expatriate life. And now you're in Singapore, where you're overseeing APAC, right? Yes. And I know it's a region that you are very passionate about, and I am super passionate about too. Yes. So, so let me count the ways why the region is so exciting right now, right? Cool. So I'm going to do a list: one, digital adoption; two, rising middle class; three demographic strengths, right? World's largest Gen Z population. Four, demand surges from India. Japan's still a bit soft, but China. And then, yeah, you're still waiting for China's real comeback, right? So of these five points, what are you most excited about? I I have to always go with demographics. I mean, you know me, those are the long-term trends that will stay around. But I think of the ones that you mentioned... The one that recently has started really piquing my interest is Gen Z. Mm-hmm. Um, I was looking at some of the data and you realize that that's 25% of the population for APAC already. And if you compare it, combine it with the millennials, that's actually 50% um, of the consumers that potentially could enter the market. So one is, is it's a huge population of people with potentially a very different set of values and a very different um, uh, childhood maybe than we would have experienced. And I think that's driving a lot of differences in the way that they will purchase and though they will make brand decisions, for instance. Um, so we know that you know not only are they digital native, which is probably what we would have called the millennials, um, but you know they've grown up with multiple screens. They're multimedia, right? It's not just the printed word or... Uh, it's it's the audio, it's the video, it's all mixed together. Potentially VR uh, in a in a very near future. So there's there's a lot there. Now we also know that their uh, values are different. Um, I think the thing that has really come to the forefront is the environmental consciousness. Right, that is very very strong um, with the Gen Zs. I think if we look at the millennials, that's where you start seeing the greater consciousness for inclusion and diversity. But it feels like we're on this mm. additive, right? Where you start with with you know better better values in one area, and then you're you're looking at a different area um, with the environmental consciousness. So really, really great to see that. Um, I think also um, when we expand then to then the greater middle class, which is what I usually talk about. Again, like you know, there's no other place in the world that has the huge burgeoning middle class that we have in Asia or Asia Pacific, right? So I think if we uh, think about, what, 2030, we will have 3.5 billion people in APAC in the middle class. And if we compare that to the U.S., it says 689 million, right? So it's just no question um, that this is the place to be. This is where we will continue to see uh, you know, travel innovating and growing. And so it's just an exciting place to be. So I'm going to choose those. Right. You know, it's when you were speaking, this... 
this vision, this visualization came to my mind, you know, the Hokusai is a great wave of Kanagawa, you know, and you, the way you were talking, I just kind of imagined this great wave of Gen Z and millennials yeah. just pushing travel forward in, in our region. So really a very exciting time. And Southeast Asia uh, in particular is a yeah. fairly new market for you, right? Because you, you've been here now one and a half years, yes. right? Yes. So you are more familiar with Northeast Asia. So can you Talk about how the two regions are different, because I'm very curious about that. Okay, well, uh, I'm not the expert, um, but hopefully, uh, let me just share my opinion. It's my personal opinion, but I think one of the things that um, has really been interesting for me in Southeast Asia is however imperfect it may be, the concept between behind ASEAN of kind of trying to think about Southeast Asia as a larger whole, I think is actually really powerful and could be much more powerful. And, and the way I look at that is, you know, of course, the demographics, again, like that's, that's all normal, right? We know that Northeast Asia is declining, Southeast Asia continues to grow, um, especially places like Indonesia. But if we think about that idea of ASEAN, right, I think about immigration and foreign labor. Northeast Asia, no questions. 2.2%, I think, of the Japan uh, working population is foreign about the same in Korea, um, despite its global outlook. Singapore, perhaps an outlier, it's what, 30, 30%, I think? It's quite high in Singapore, but even Thailand is 10%. But when I looked at the breakdown of where they come from, a lot of it is within ASEAN. So you have a great number of people kind of moving across the boundaries here, right, and helping then to grow the greater region as a whole, also, I would assume that that's also, um, you know, adding a lot of cultural awareness across the boundaries that probably we wouldn't see so much in Northeast Asia. And that is then leading to the third thing which I see, which is from a, specifically if we look at the travel brands, we do see brands um, that, well, not only travel, actually across e-commerce that cut across the country boundaries, right? So Traveloka, amazing example of a company um, that is massively successful across Southeast Asia and now starting to reach out into other parts of Asia. Uh, Grab, another great example. Um, I was looking at some numbers that were published, and it's interesting because, again, you, we think of Northeast Asia as a powerhouse, right? You know, I was, the Traveloka says their monthly active users is 55 million. If we look at a, one of the large, actually the largest OTA in Japan, which is Jalan, their published number is 13.7. So it just gives you an idea that, yes, maybe the levels of wealth may be, still be quite different, but just those demographics, it's hard to deny the demographics and the, I think the thinking behind how do you treat ASEAN as, as a single economic unit and, and leverage that to grow in the world. I think that is so interesting and, like I said, imperfect probably from maybe your perspective living here, but I think it's it's leaps and bounds there's, ahead of what you find There's always elsewhere. beauty in imperfections and, you know, there are... Brands that thrive really well in markets where with bad traffic and chaos, you know, and and there is definitely a community and affinity within Southeast Asia or the ASEAN region that you actually don't find in Northeast Asia, right? Correct. You know, there is, you know, as as a Southeast Asian living in Singapore and a Malaysian, definitely there is this community and affinity that is really quite powerful. So, so really, really good point. I love it. Very, very good point. Okay. 
So now let's talk about another exciting thing, which is B2B. You know, I know it's not a sexy topic. Uh, most people say oh, It is B2B. a sexy topic. I love this topic. <laughs> so I say, oh, plumbing is boring. It's what goes behind the scenes, you know, but... I think, you know, I think it's, for me, I love B2B, right? So, um, and, and in the US, you have struck some huge partnerships. You've got Walmart, you've got MasterCard, you've got SoFi. Is it SoFi or Sophie? Uh, SoFi. SoFi, yeah. okay. So you're enabling banks, retailers to sell travel through your technology, right? Essentially turning everyone into travel retailers. Yes. So how is this approach being executed in Asia? Is it different from how it's being executed in the US? I, you know, I think that the overarching strategy is is quite similar. Um, however, I think the thing to realize is that the B2B business actually in many ways, in APAC, we've been leading the way um, of the rest of the world. So, you know, we've been on transition where uh, certainly pre-COVID, I would say that as a company, we focused on our B2C angle, right? And this is global, certainly within APAC as well. But even while that was all happening, we were growing our B2B business. And a lot of that growth was actually happening in Asia, in Asia Pacific. Um, so the fact that we have both, I think one is is amazing. We know that the growth of the business itself, like I think in our earnings, I think in Q2 was saying we're growing that business by 26% versus uh, 2022. So it's it's definitely been growing really well. But a lot of that growth is coming from, you know, some, some of the work that we're doing in, in Asia Pacific. So Yes, from a global perspective, it's about you know still working with a lot of these partners, building new partnerships. We have, I think, in Asia, we just announced Jetstar, we announced Philippine Airlines, we uh, talked about Como. Um, it's also non-travel. So if we think about e-commerce, um, we have a deal now with uh, G Market in South Korea. Um, so we just we see how, in many ways, we already have partnerships with many of the largest players in APAC. And so we're starting to look at other segments. We're looking at other players in other places that maybe were underprivileged. Could be things like corporate travel, for instance, where there's still a lot of opportunity for, I would say, um, optimization within that ecosystem. I think also the other one we have to think about is to expand the definition of B2B. Um, because it's not just about... Uh, you know, providing inventory and technology solutions, uh, which is super exciting, but there's there's more than that. There's things like media solutions, which is our digital advertising arm, which is also huge in APAC. That's another one that, you know, we, how do we help people to, uh, you know, have increased visibility within the travel ecosystem to also support their business, right? That's another thing that we can think of from a B2B perspective. I've recently started exploring our affiliates business. So how do you link loyalty programs? Or how do you build into uh, couponing programs with people who are not even in travel, right? So there are all these niches in B2B that are ripe for us to enter or to further develop. And I'm just super interested in just further expanding that umbrella to cover more and more of the B2B space. I think the other thing is, um, you know, again, we have pretty much partners with, I would say, all of the largest players across APAC. Um, So it's starting to look at understanding better who are the up-and-coming players, right? If you think about, I'll throw an example out, um, but, you know, Yanolja came out of nowhere, mm. right? And, and we need to continue to identify those next generation of startups um, that we can also support with our technologies. And maybe they'll grow into a huge competitor. That's, that's okay. Um, that's part of the process. But I think that's one thing is, is looking at that. The other piece is also looking at new markets. Um, so although... If we look at Asia Pacific, we tend to think of kind of Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia, and Oceania. 
we spread it out a little bit, Middle East is right next door, and there's a huge amount of growth happening in that area as well. So I think from a B2B perspective, we're also starting to look at some of these other markets. Right. So you really have a lot of opportunities. You've got the vertical opportunities. You've got the horizontal yes. opportunities. So basically, you want to empower everyone to sell travel? Yeah. That's, that's the goal. You know, that's, if you think of our mission statement, that's really what it is. You know, we want to power travel for everybody. Um, and we think that, that we have a unique value proposition there. And we have a lot of technology tools already that provide that. And during COVID, we built more. Yeah. That was the message that I think at Focus Right, uh, Julie Whalen was speaking and, and Peter Kern during his earnings call too, said, you know, the time that has been spent sort of building the tech stack and now, you know, now it's ready. Yes. Right. Now it's ready to really take Expedia to the moon or, you know, help everybody self travel. So that's the, that's the message that I got anyway. So, okay. So now let's talk about hospitality, right? Sure. We, we, we love staying in hotels and I found a study by, WATG that pointed to this five trends in hospitality. And I'm going to read through the trends and I'll, you pick the one that picks your interest, right? So the first trend is one, luxury brand collaborations embrace the experience economy. Two, private members clubs target the vacation sector. And then three, branded ecosystems expand guest experiences, which means hotels venturing into adjacent lifestyle concepts. And then number four is scaled up accommodation becomes a permanent fixture. That means riding on the rise of multi-generational blended travel and longer stays. And then the fifth is innovative amenities redefine expectations. So of the five, which one are you most excited by, Michael? Um, <clears throat> I had a chance to actually read the study and because uh, I, was, I was curious. I, was, I wanted to choose one, but I found that I couldn't choose one. Uh, so I'm going to throw a curveball a little bit. Okay. The thing that, that, it, that actually was impressing me when I read the study was that they were all associated with the experience that the traveler would have, right? It's about raising the level of experience they have. So a lot of this was also a little bit on the high end, but that's what it sounded like. It was like, I want to present, you know, a better brand image or I want to provide a different type of experience. I want to have better amenities so that they can feel pampered, but it's all about that experience. And I think that is tying into uh, a larger trend where, yes, you have more and more people traveling, but they also have higher and higher expectations, especially in Asia Pacific, I would say. It's like we're, we're sort of moving beyond the stage where travel itself is aspirational to you want to be aspirational within travel. And you know, it's funny, I, to, I was speaking with the GM um, of the Fullerton, and uh, you know, he's very, very particular about the experience that the guest has throughout the hotel. And it's about that. It's not necessarily the things, it's about the experience that the traveler has. And I'll share a story that just kind of re reminded me of this. Uh, I was just in New York for personal travel, and I stayed at the Park Lane Hotel. I'm gonna name them because they're so amazing. They have, it's, it's an older property, um, so it's not the newest hotel in New York. Park Lane, did you? Park Lane, right. It's right on um, Central Park South. Uh, it overlooks Central Park, so great location. But the thing that has made me go back, because it's my third stay now, uh, out of all the thousands and thousands of hotels in New York, why have I gone back three times? Because their concierge service is phenomenal. So they will bend over backwards to make you happy, and in a city where sometimes service levels are certainly not as great as they are in Asia, they really just impress you with like, 
whatever it takes, they will try and figure out and fix it for you or, or figure out how to get you into the restaurant or figure out how to get you the ticket. So I just found that amazing. What I'll, I'll tell you the, the quick story. Um, it was actually my birthday. Oh, happy birthday. Thank you. Um, and uh, some friends had bought me a cake, but the refrigerator in the room was too small to store the cake. How so, big a cake was this? Well, it's the U.S., so <laughs> not okay. Japan, right? So it was it was huge, um, and but we didn't. And we're like, okay, well, you don't want to waste the cake because but you can't eat it all. And uh, so I was I was asking the hotels, like, can you possibly store this for us? And of course they said no because that's you know from a, a hygiene perspective, like that there's laws, it's a problem. But they said, but we can bring a refrigerator to your room if you like. <laughs> And they, they literally brought a refrigerator to my room for just for me. Wow. I mean, small, not, not huge, but certainly yeah. big enough to fit it this kind That's of extra large. That's pretty special. Yeah, so just things like that. And I think I, I'm, I'm raising it as, as an example to just say it's not always around the high-end amenities. It's often around just are you really, really spot on with the experience every step of the way, end to end, right? And... Where Expedia, we've really bought into that message, and I think we've we've shared and that our focus right now is on the traveler experience and providing a great guest experience. And where before maybe we thought, well, that's the job of the hotel or it's the job of the of the airline. Like we don't play that role, but we do play a role. We are part of the the chain, right? And so we have our role to play within that. We need to educate travelers on which hotels and which airlines are providing a great traveler experience, and that's how we're doing it, right? And we build programs like OneKey where that will be taken into account. So everything we're doing is now built around creating those amazing traveler experiences. And to me, that's very much in line with the trend that this study is talking about. I can see that. I mean, you know, I think... I, I just returned from the U.S. as well, and really, I think we we in Asia, we are really spoiled when it comes to to service. So we are demanding, but I think travelers have definitely become more demanding after the pandemic, right? And the fact that we are paying higher prices as well, so there is definitely like more awareness, more higher expectations, and you better get it right. You know, I want this right. So there's less room to me for mediocrity. Yes. You know, and maybe travelers are less forgiving this day. So I think the, the whole industry has to step up. So when you talk about travel experience and, and having your supplier, helping your suppliers to deliver the traveler experience on the ground for your, for Expedia's customers, what about the online experience that you're also offering, right? On, on, on your website and all that, how are you dealing with that travel experience digitally? Yeah. I, I would say a few things. I think one is I just talked about the guest experience. We actually have that as what we call a guest experience score. And we are figuring out different ways to expose that to travelers. Sometimes we're testing to see if you see it directly, does it matter? Or is it better to indirectly reference it? But I think we're finding that um, travelers do value understanding where uh, a property may sit or where an airline may sit in terms of its experience. So that's one. It's just let's let's make sure we're using that data to educate travelers in the best possible way. I think the second thing is that we are looking at the experience of shopping itself on our site. And one of the early things that we realized was, uh, you know, consumers are often confused by too much choice. And if you think about the traditional experience on many OTAs, it's I put in a name, I search, and then I get a huge list of properties. When in fact, if you curate that down to a smaller list, it can help. Or 
if you can try and figure out out of all the different permutations within a hotel, all the different rate plans and everything, if you can just bubble up the things that are important for that user, it makes it a better shopping experience, right? And we do this in two ways. One was our recommendations engine. So we have a bunch of AI that's looking at what do you, Suhun, as a traveler, prefer, right, when you travel. And we will generally want to recommend properties that are in line with your purchasing behavior. That's one. So that helps curate the content. I think the second thing is uh, what we call sh smart shopping. So that's the idea that once I've chosen a property, rather than just showing another list of all the rooms and all, everything, it will show you, again, what we think you would prefer and would also give you toggle buttons to say, okay, I want breakfast, I don't want breakfast, I want this, that, another. And you can add different things. You can push different toggle buttons. So rather than going to filtering through all the different rate plans, we bubble it all up for you and then you put some toggles in and it will then choose the rate plan that matches your wishes, right? So we're looking at all these things constantly of how do you improve that experience as well. Um, finally, I would say um, on the review side, we really look at the reviews quite carefully as well. And so, you know, we'll, speaking of things like inclusion and diversity, uh, very early on when we would find a review, for instance, that was clearly indicating something was wrong from an inclusion and diversity perspective, maybe it was a uh, unfortunate comment about you know the property, we do take action and we will remove properties if we think that there's been an unfortunate incident, especially in places like VRs, for instance, that can happen a lot. Um, you know, we will take action on those as well. And again, make sure that we're pre creating the best experience for our travelers. Right. I mean, travelers definitely need a lot more help actually shopping these days online, right? It's so complicated now. I was trying to book a flight to from just Kuala, uh, from Singapore to Kuala Lumpur, and it's just astounding how difficult it is. Was that, on, was that on Expedia, by the way? Or? Uh, no, I won't mention. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> but, but let's talk about inclusivity and accessibility because that's one area that you and I uh, spoke about a few months ago. And do you feel that Asia is behind on this versus the rest of the world? And what steps are you taking uh, in this area to make Expedia a more inclusive, accessible employer? Hmm. <laughs> Behind is such a <laughs> negative <laughs> term. We're all at different stages of the journey, is, is the way I'd put it. And, and certainly for Asia Pacific, um, every region is kind of at a different stage. And that's just reality. Um, I don't have a, a negative perception of it. I think that uh, most regions that I'm aware of, um, wherever they are on that journey, I think they generally want to move in a more inclusive direction, right? It's just the pace of that may be differing. So I, I, I'm, I'm quite um, understanding of where we are um, as a region, I would say. Um, but if we think about things like, um, you know, inclusion of women in the labor force, right? Like this is something that early on, I think many regions have realized that's an important thing to do. And, you know, whether it's Japan or Korea, like, uh, you know, governments have moved very quickly, I think, early to try and make that a better situation. Um, you know, we've done things certainly in region of, uh, you know, when we hire, do hiring panels now, it's always mixed gender so that you, you provide an equal chance to everyone. We will look at having um, candidate pools that are generally balanced. And so we're also, we're always telling people, our recruiters, like, it's not good enough to just come in with an unbalanced panel and say it was too hard, right? You, you need to find, um, you know, the great, the great female talent that's out there. And I think that has contributed a lot to making us generally in Expedia, for instance, across APAC gender balanced, which is 
apparently still rare. I, I'm so used to it now that I don't think of it as special, but sometimes, uh, you know, I, I, I'll talk about this and someone will say, wow, that's amazing. You've achieved that. And for me, it's got like, well, that's What's normal. the balance? What's the balance you have? Within um, sales and marketing, it's actually, it's, it's right on the cusp of 50-50. Really, and in fact, it's in my organization, my direct organization, it's even swayed on uh, female side a little bit, fifty-four percent female. So it's it's super super well balanced from that perspective. I think the second thing that um, we have to do as companies is also just help help countries, right? And that's about having more visibility in terms of what we do. So we will do things like talk about our our efforts in inclusion and diversity. Um, in an effort to also make sure that we're educating the countries that we're in, the people that we work with, our partners in the industry, right, to make sure that they can also understand. And so as examples, uh, you know, we we created uh, a very early on, we had what we call an LGBTQIA-friendly flag within our extranet. And that allows a property to say that, you know, we are welcoming to LGBTQIA travelers. In Japan, we had barely any suppliers, any hotels who'd signed up for that. And so we started working with many hotels to say, look, this flag exists. Um, you know, we had the Olympics coming up at that point in time. You know, you'll have a lot of travelers coming in. It's a good one to do. But you know, a lot of them were, were, would say, well, what does it mean if I, if I check this? What do I have to do? And, and there was an education process to say, okay, well, let's talk about what that would mean. And what that, how you would treat guests who arrive, for instance, or how you would treat, um, you know, a, a transgender person who wants to stay in an onsen. Like, what would you do? And so that those opportunities for education, I think, is something that we've been, we've striven to really try and do across the region, whatever the identity group happens to be. Um, I think the third thing is um, we've started looking at what we do, and I just talked about the mixed gender hiring, but. We've also started to expand our scope into other areas, and uh, disability hiring is actually one. Disability hiring and inclusion is one that we're really now focused on quite strongly. And I'm really quite happy to say, I mean, we talk about are we behind. Um, I'm really very happy to say that the Singapore government is very, very active in this space. Um, and in fact, we are now working with the Singapore government and Hilton, by the way, to create a program where we can have apprenticeships for people based in Singapore, uh, people with disabilities, give them a chance to understand how to do revenue management at a hotel, at Expedia. Then, then they would go and work at Hilton for a while and understand what it's like to work at a hotel. And at the end of that, what we're hoping is that it gives people who may not have had an experience within this industry to get them experience, and that then would open up employment opportunities within a very, very large industry, right? And the fact that that is being, you know, part of that is being funded by the Singapore government, it does tell you that, you know, these governments actually, you know, they're trying to do the right thing. And, and again, we're all moving at our own pace. But frankly, I think um, most of them are do, trying to do the right things in their own spaces and how we then work together as companies to make sure that we can make progress together. I think that's where we are. That's, that's a great story. It starts with a small step, right? Yeah. You know, but you know, it can become really big. So that's, that's great. So I can't believe it, Michael, like we're nearly at the end of 2023. Can mm -hmm. you believe that? It's, it's flown by, you know, cause I, I mean, I moved here. <laughs> and so I think it's been so quick. <laughs> so if I were to ask you one word to describe 2023, what would that word be? Um, so. It's not one word. I guess it's new dawn 
or daybreak, maybe. Okay. Is that one word? That's one word, daybreak. Yeah, that's one word. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and I think it's about the feeling of, in 2023, I think for travel, it was finally, the trajectory was, was kind of just up. Like we didn't have the situation where it was up and down, up and down. It was generally one direction, going in one direction. Uh, I think we also learned a lot around, not only was it a new day, but it was a, it wasn't, we weren't starting the same day, you see, we're starting a new day. And so you didn't quite know where you were going. And so while everything felt very positive, there were also a lot of unknowns, right? We were still in a situation where, uh, you know, you talked about some of the countries that haven't fully returned, right? Japan outbound hasn't fully returned. China's not quite, you know, fully recovered yet either. And so you just didn't know where things were going to land. Meanwhile, for us, we had a huge explosion in South and Southeast Asia. And, yeah. You know, but that, it sounds like the weather, right? I mean, you wake up in the morning and then you see daybreak and then you don't know how the day is going to, yeah. you know, it's going to be, you know, stormy or whatever. Right? So it's yeah, you similar. Don't, you don't know. Similar. You don't okay. know. Okay. Uh, but, 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 a, but a good feeling and a positive feeling. And I think, I think we moved forward in so many ways. Um, to set us up for for next year. Yeah. So so let's talk about a trip that you made mm. this year that will be forever remembered in your memory bank. Other than that, having the fridge delivered to your <laughs> hotel room in Park Lane to, for your massive cake. <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely a good memory. But but the you know I would say um, Madrid and Barcelona. Um, so I, I did what, what do they call it? Uh, a, a, a work and leisure trip. Blender travel. Yes. Pleasure. I, I was one of those people, <laughs> uh, who got on the bandwagon, but, uh, I had a work trip to Madrid and, you know, it's, I mean, Sohun, it's probably for you as well. It's rare actually these days to go to a country that I've never gone to. I think we, we've traveled so much that many of the places have been covered and, you know, I went to Madrid. I was like, wow, actually, I've never been to Spain in my whole life, all this time traveling, and I'd never wow. visited Spain. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to combine this with a personal trip. And so I, I did tack on some vacation days and explored Madrid, explored Barcelona, and it was just an amazing experience because, you know, it's it has the blend of architecture and art, Spain, history, yeah. music, food, like all of my favorites anyway. Uh, so I just, I loved it. I had an amazing time. Um, just the, every day was a was a new adventure, so I think it really stayed with me. Well, you know, every year I actually make it a resolution to visit one new country or two new countries that I've never been. So Ooh, I, I, like I do make that deliberate. So every year I add something new, you know. So this year was was Samarkand in Uzbekistan, for example. Oh, so wow. so let's talk about twenty twenty four. Like yeah. after daybreak, what's the word to describe twenty twenty four? Um. Confidence, I think, um, and, and confident in, in, in many different meanings. I think one is, I think 2023 was an upward trajectory. I think we continue that in 2024. Um, but the confidence comes from a few things, I would say. We have to always remember those demographics again. And in many ways, Asia, you know, first into COVID, last out of COVID, all this stuff. Sometimes I think we get a little bit too negative. And I think 2024, we need to be extremely confident about the strength of this region. Everything is pointing in the right direction, right? 2025, I think, if Focus Right is right, that we will have the largest travel market in the world, right? So everything is, is, is moving, I think, in such a positive direction that I think we have to start thinking of ourselves as leading the world 
in travel and not just following the trends of somebody else. So I would, I would like us to have that self-confidence um, in this part of the world. Um, belief, believe in confidence. Actually, yeah. I focus right. Um, and also, I just came from a conference in Bangkok. And, uh, you know, there, there is definitely a sentiment that in terms of s- the way travelers are behaving and, like, and, and using technology, Asia is ahead right now. Yeah. You know, and we're really, you know, setting the pace in, you know, the creation of new models, the emerg- emergence of new models and possibly how travelers will transact in the future, yes. the younger population, because we have this demographic advantage, right? So, yeah. So believe and confidence that Asia will lead the way instead of always sort of playing the subservient and go, oh, let's look at what the West is doing and exactly. let's learn from that. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I always encourage my team, like, we need to figure out things to export from Asia. And so that's why, I mean, mm. I don't want to repeat, but that B2B work that we're talking about, like, we are leading the world. And a lot of the things that we do, we're exporting. And so I think as an industry overall, we need to do more of that. All right. So now I want to end with one final question, which is about a trip, right? So a trip you want to make to add to your memory bank in 2024. I should probably take your, 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 your idea and have one new trip every year. So I do have two countries in mind. I don't have one yet. Between Maldives, which I've also never been to, amazingly enough, just four hours from Singapore, it's right? Quite similar to Okinawa as an yeah, island. <laughs> true, true. But you know, it's, I have to, I have to be true to my my island upbringing. But I think Maldives is 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 kind of calling to me. The other one though is Machu Picchu. Uh, How different! I know. How different! What contrast! I'm really torn, and a lot of it will come down to timing. But there is an op- a potential opportunity in March or April for Machu Picchu. Go so, for it, yeah, Michael. I, Go for <laughs> it. Machu While I'm Picchu. still young enough to climb the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. Go for that. Well, you know, I wish you will go to Machu Picchu in March, April. Yeah. Maybe I'll join you there. Yeah, okay, I've never there been. Go. There you go. That's a new destination. Thank you, Michael, for that Thank wonderful you, conversation. Thank you for listening to Expedia Talks and the final episode in this special series featuring Expedia Group leaders talking about all things travel tech, industry trends, and changing customer behavior. To listen to the full series, look for the WIT podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, Michael. 